Now let's turn together to the book of 1 John in the New Testament as we read this evening in chapter 5, the last chapter of this significant part of God's Word, verses 1 to 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You will find the book of 1 John uh, just before the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. And if you are a visitor, we encourage you to follow the reading in your Bible or the Pew Bible uh, from the rack in front of you. Verses 1 through 5, where John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God has overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Thus far reads the inspired and inerrant word of God. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now in our long series of studies on these many Sunday evenings through the first book of John, we have finally arrived at the last chapter of this great epistle, this great letter of John uh, to the churches. And in this chapter, the aged apostle, as we are going to see over several Sunday evenings together, is giving his very last counsels to God's people. They are very rich words and very full of practical uh, counsel and commandment to God's people. And this evening, as we have come together to look at the first five verses of chapter 5, you will, I'm sure, have recognized, even in the reading of this passage, that the three familiar tests that have characterized this letter of John are once more before us this evening. The three tests that are the distinguishing mark of the genuine Christian from the one who may be a false Christian. And the great thing about these verses, as you may have noticed in the reading, is that for the first time in this letter, the three tests are now joined together. Now you remember that through the great part of this letter of 1 John, the apostle has developed these tests. First one test, and then another, and then the third and how he has returned to them again. For instance, if you turn back to chapter 2, and I'd like you to do that in your Bibles for a moment, you notice that in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2, you have there the moral test for the Christian. In other words, whether we are keeping the commandments of God and walking in the light. Verse 4 there says, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And John returned to this 
test, the moral test, if you look in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, where again, for the second time, he deals uh, with that distinguishing mark of the Christian. If you look back at chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, you see the social test. John, 1 John, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, the test regarding whether we love the brethren. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, and it is, of course, the message of loving the brother loving our Christian brethren. And in chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, as we saw, he returns to that social test a second time, the love of the brethren. If we do not love the brethren, then we are living in unrighteousness, and in no sense can we be called the children of God. And in a similar way, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, was the doctrinal test whether we believe that Jesus is the Christ and he has truly come in the flesh. And that test also was repeated once more through this letter in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the great message on which we lingered for two Sunday evenings, you recall, on testing the spirits, and that the great test of Christian profession is the ability to be able to say with utter conviction that Jesus is the anointed of God, the unique Son of God, and that he has indeed come amongst us, as the scriptures declare, in human form, enfleshed. Now the point before us this evening, beloved, is that, as I say to you, for the very first time in this whole letter, these three profound and searching tests are brought to our attention together, not separately anymore, not dealing with one and then the other and then the third, but joined together so that before us, in a sense, is a multicolored tapestry of God's truth that simply dazzles us with its brilliance. As John concludes this letter and deliberately combines these three tests together, as though he is indicating to us that ultimately it is impossible to separate one from another. But three tests stand or fall together. Am I in Christ? Then I am committed to believe the right doctrines of the Christian faith. Am I in Christ? Then I am committed to love the brethren. Am I a Christian? then I am committed in toto to living a righteous life and keeping the commandments of God. Beloved, they are inseparable. Now this is the importance of the beginning of this final chapter, verses 1 through 5. And I want you then to look at these three tests with me this evening. And as I've said to you so frequently through this series, here is no mere repetition. As you cursorily study this letter, you might say to yourself, but John the Apostle is in his dotage. And like old men, he's constantly repeating himself, almost ad nauseam. But, beloved, that is not the case. 
as we have seen, there is, as it were, a progression, the spiral staircase. It seems we're going in the same direction and standing in the same place on the staircase, having gone up one level, but we've advanced. And there is always, whenever John returns to these tests, some new and searching element in the way in which he brings them to us and the way in which he applies them to our lives. Now look with me then at the first of these tests, which is belief in the truth. And you find that in the first part of verse 1 and the second part of verse 4 and flowing into verse 5. Let me read those verses to you. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 1 at the beginning. Then verse 4 at the end, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we have before us the doctrinal test for the final time in this lovely letter of 1 John. Now, is John simply repeating himself? It's the same great theme. Again, isn't it? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But do you notice, even in the reading of these verses in your hearing, there is a shift in the perspective by which John is looking at this great truth. The Christian faith, in other words, my doctrinal commitment this evening, which is central to the whole of Christianity, has its origin in God, says John, and it has its fruit in overcoming the world. Now I challenge you to look back at the two places that John has dealt with this doctrinal test before, and you will not find either of these thoughts in either of those two passages. And he introduces it as that advance, that movement forward in his thinking about the Christian faith. Now let's think about what he gives us in these verses this evening. He's showing us the source of our Christian faith, our belief rightly in the doctrines of the Christian faith concerning the person of Christ supremely and the fruit that we should witness in our lives as a result of right belief. Now, first of all, it's source, the beginning of verse 1. Where does this faith, beloved, come from? And he says, you notice, that we have been born of God. Now, hold on to that thought for a moment. You see, there's a great deal of confusion in the world today, isn't there, over the term faith and belief. Many people claim to have faith and belief in this contemporary world of ours. But they speak of faith in terms of, for instance, the world religions, the world faiths today. They adhere to one or other of these. Or they speak of the term faith or belief in terms of keeping faith with something or someone, a promise that I have made, a person that I am close to. Sometimes they equate it with a positive outlook on the world. 
or in times of tragedy, the unbeliever or the unregenerate uh, regards faith as a sort of hopeful, upbeat outlook, almost faith in fate. But I have faith, they say, as a loved one is in hospital uh, in some very critical condition as a result of a car accident or some wasting disease, and it's almost faith in fate. Now, is this what we're talking about here? Of course it isn't. John is dealing with the question, how may I come to true belief in the Lord Jesus? Or if I am a Christian, how did I come to that amazing point in my life when I rested upon Christ Jesus alone for my salvation. And you notice that the emphasis, beloved, is upon the fact of spiritual birth. It's the thought that ties this whole subject together. In verse 1, you are born of God, says John. And again in verse 4a, everything that is of God is born of God. John says again. And it provides the underpinning for John's teaching on this subject. Where does faith come from? And his answer is in being made alive to God in the first instance. As a result of which, I am enabled to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh and to possess righteous conduct in my life, and to love the brethren. But it all starts in a supernatural birth where God is the doer of it, and I am the recipient of that great work. Now, beloved, I cannot sufficiently emphasize the necessity of your understanding this. It is the very distinction between the true gospel that is being preached in the church today and an attenuated and sometimes false gospel. It's the difference between the biblical faith or biblical Calvinism and unscriptural Arminianism, on the other hand. And it addresses the question, do men choose God by deciding to believe in him, or does God choose men? by making them alive in Christ, being born of God, by which they are then able to believe in Christ to their salvation. Which comes first, the new birth or faith? And verse 1 answers that question, as does verse 4 of the beginning. Now, it's very sad, you see, in our English versions, that none of them that I'm aware of render the precise meaning of the Greek texts in verse 1. Because believe is a present tense, which is a continuous activity, and being born of God is a perfect tense in the Greek, which refers to past activity with continuing consequences. So what John is saying to us is everyone who is in a state of faith now and is continuing to believe that Jesus is the Christ, does so because he has been born of God. In other words, our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence 
of our past experience of new birth, by which we became and remain God's children. Which comes first, faith or regeneration? And Scripture answers decisively and universally, regeneration precedes faith. Believing is the consequence, beloved, of the new birth and not its cause. And I want to say to you this evening, if you're present in this service and you're struggling to become a Christian and you want to know the truth and your heart is moved by the Holy Spirit and you're wondering how this can come about and how you can come to faith, I say to you, my dear friend, you need to embrace the humbling doctrine that you can never have right belief without becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus. No matter how fine a person you may be, whatever church you belong to, whatever you are doing, you need a new birth. That is the entrance gate to the Christian faith. For saving faith, An internal spiritual experience comes through that gate of regeneration. And your responsibility is to cry to God to change you from the inside so that you may experience this new birth and be translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that miraculous change within you enables you to believe in the Lord Jesus, to the saving of your soul. Only those regenerated, born of God, have saving faith in Christ. Now that's its source. But do you notice, secondly, it's fruit. At the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, where John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. These are very significant verses. You see, if this evening I claim to be a child of God, if I claim the other marks of loving the brethren and living righteously before God, what should be the fruit of this experience? And John gives us a very decisive answer. You know, I read, as I may have mentioned to you earlier in this series a number of years ago, one of the recent Gallup polls about Americans and one of the statistics was that one-third of Americans alive today, something like 80 million of them, claim to be born again. Yet the public morality of this age and our decadence, both morally and spiritually, belies and denies any such claim. All I can say is that if people think that of themselves, they must have confused the genuine with the spurious. Why? Because John's answer is that the fruit of right doctrine, which comes from regeneration, is what? Overcoming the world. Verse 4. Overcoming the world. Again in verse 5. That which is born of God does what? Overcomes the world. And this is the fruit of genuine belief in Christ. By the power of God, my dear friends, we begin to swim against the current. We begin to overcome the world 
the flesh and the devil. The world's priorities, the pride of life, the prestige of status that I have, the love of money, the desire for possessions, all of these are dealt with and kept in their place. And I live, as I said to you this morning, with a man whose eye is single for the glory of God and with respect to his great majesty. And this is what John is teaching us. And this is the new element in the doctrinal test that he brings to us in these verses. Victory! Are you living like that tonight? Because if you're not, it raises the question, are you really in Christ? You know, I think verses 4 and 5 are some of the most hopeful verses in the whole of the New Testament. Am I in Christ? Then I am being enabled to overcome the world because that which is born of God does overcome the world. And I see it in the fact that drink that perhaps once had a hold over me is broken, that drug abuse that once enslaved me is gone forever, that the tendency toward immorality to which I was prone, the Lord has dealt with that, my habit of lying and cheating and slandering others and gossiping unbiblically about them, the Lord is dealing with that too. And a fearful man is made strong, and a weak woman suddenly becomes courageous, and we are gaining victory in areas in which previously we were enslaved. Now that's what belief in the truth does for us, beloved. It's not merely an intellectual thing. May God save us from an intellectualization of the Christian faith. Do you have right belief? It comes from the source of regeneration. Are you living in right belief? It is giving you victory over the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Not our fighting, says John, which we would expect, but our faith. And we are enabled to possess a continuing and persevering and overcoming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the message of Christ to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven times over, the message rings out like the tolling of a great bell. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. It's not a class of superior Christians that Christ has in view, not those who do some great exploits for him, but the ordinary humdrum Christian living in these wicked cities, to them, Jesus says, to him that overcomes, I will give. To those who remain faithful to the truth as it is in Jesus, what a blessing. Belief in the truth leads to an overcoming life. But do you notice, secondly, and I want to be briefer on this because we've explored this area so thoroughly in previous studies, that the second test quickly follows at the end of verse 1 and into the beginning of verse 2, the love of the brethren. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we uh, love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. 
Now, let me say there are two problems, and I'll deal with this very quickly, two problems in these verses. Some commentators, such as the great church father, Augustine, in the fourth century, held that the reference in verse 2 to loving the child was a reference to Christ. If we love God, the Father, then that love will lead us to love his child, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that is very true. Biblically, it's true. But it's against the whole context of the passage. And it's clear in the context that by the child John means not the unique child of God, the Lord Jesus, the only begotten, but the children of God, the brethren and sisters, the living church of God, not the Son of God, but the sons of God, if you like, believers. Now, that's the first problem, and there's no doubt that that is the solution to it. But the second problem is in verse 2, which implies that if we're uncertain whether we love other Christians, we should reassure ourselves by determining whether we love God. Now, that's what John appears to be saying at the beginning of verse 2, but the problem is it's opposite to everything else that John has been teaching us. Because John's emphasis, you see, is that if we love one another, on the basis of loving one another, we can be sure that we are loving God. And if we're not loving the brethren, there's no way in which we are loving God. We are liars. And for John to say the opposite here and turn the test on its head, uh, would be appear to contradict all that he is saying. So it's very clear, I think, that when he says, by this we know, in verse 2, he's not referring to what follows, but to what precedes. And if you see it in that light, then it brings what he's saying into line with what he's said all through the letter. That is, everyone who loves the parent loves the child. Every Christian is a child of God. So when we love God, we automatically are bound to love our fellow Christians. And these are two difficulties in the text. But let me say very quickly something about this love. Do you notice that it's the fruit of true belief? We've seen this again and again, and I won't take up your time with it this evening. Do I have right belief? Do I know the regenerating power of God and the fruit of that regenerating power in that I am overcoming the world? then this leads me out in love for members of the Christian church. So spiritual rebirth leads to faith. Faith leads to loving God. Loving God leads to one loving one another, and others will see it in compassion, and care, and kindness, and thoughtfulness that is foreign to the unregenerate person. There will be a discernible change there will spring up with us, within us, the characteristics of the new life of God in the soul. And we should expect to see it. Husbands should see it growing in their wives. Wives should see it developing in their husbands. Children should see it growing in their parents. Parents in their Christian children. It is the fruit of right belief. Now, here's the second truth about it. John says we're born into a family. Do you notice that? If I love the parent, verse 1 at the end, I love the child. And John's whole framework there is the solidarity of the human family. And he takes that argument and he applies it 
to the family of God. So to be born of God through right belief of the truth is to be born into a family. Now, in that family, I have obligations, not just to the Father who begat me, but to the brothers and sisters who live with me in the same house. And as we've said so often, it's not an optional extra in the Christian life. Love toward others is a direct result as well as an obligation of having been born of God. And it should affect our attitude to those around us. Is someone hurting? I want to minister to them. Is someone suffering? I want to relieve that suffering. Is someone bound down by Satan in some uh, terrible sin or error? I want to draw near and share that burden and by God's grace deliver them into the truth of his counsel again. Now the third thing I want you to notice about this love is that there's no discrimination in that love. Who does John have in mind when he says that we are to love the child? Who he has in mind is the person who says, I believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ. And why I say that is, in the church today, you know, we're so inclined to love those who are like us who are the same in our own congregation and fellowship, or in the same social division of society that we occupy, in the same denomination, or we can only have close fellowship with those who, like us, are strong in their theological persuasion. Is that what John says? Nothing of the kind. Is this right? Not at all. Can true Christian brotherhood and love be so restricted? John says, no, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is what? Born of God. He's my brother. He's my sister. Whatever denominational label he bears, whatever partial view of the truth he has, is he born of God? And if the answer is yes, the love of Christians for their brothers and sisters then stretches out to everyone who bears evidence of being what? A child of God. This is not only a family love. It's a non-discriminatory love. And oh, may God forgive us if we hold our garments around us in a holy huddle and say, because he's a Methodist or he's a Baptist, I can't have any fellowship with him because he's not committed to the doctrines of grace. John's answer is, is the confession made that Jesus is the Christ? Is there right doctrine there from the heart? Then go to him, go to her as a brother or a sister in the Lord and share in that fellowship and duty of love to which we are bound by the scriptures. Now thirdly, and my time is practically gone, thirdly, there is obedience to God's commands in verses 2 to 3. Now, as you look at that, uh, those verses, you see again that John is repeating this great test, this moral test, keeping his commandments. Am I born of God? Have I come to a right belief of the truth? Do I love the brethren? Then I am committed 
to living an upright life, the characteristic of which is living obediently to God's commandments. Now, just two things, and I'm through. John emphasizes, and we need this emphasis in these days, that this kind of living is not a mushy, emotional experience. Love divorced from God's commandments, dear friends, is not love at all. It's a marshmallow. It's all squishy with no substance to it. And what John is impressing upon us is that Christians frequently attempt to turn love for God into that mushy emotional experience. But just as love for the brethren involves us in actions and in truth, as he's told us in chapter 3, verse 18, so here love, so here obedience to God expresses itself in the keeping of his commandments. And we need to remember that. We need the framework of God's word, God's law, God's commandments, because if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Now, the second thing is it's not burdensome. And what an encouragement this is to us this evening. You know, we often think that this moral test is irksome and it's difficult and at times it's oppressive. Here goes the man with no faith in Christ. There are no boundaries to his lifestyle. No, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. But he lives a life free of those kind of restrictions. And we think in our sinful hearts on occasion, oh, how wonderful it would be to have a life like that. But you see, what John is telling us is that this kind of obedience is not burdensome to the Christian. Not that all of God's commandments are easy or delightsome to God's people. Sometimes they're not at all that way. But in contrast to all the wrong understanding of God's commandments that the Pharisees had with their man-made rules that were a heavy burden upon the heart, God's commandments rightly understood are a joy to the believing heart. So that we say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. We see that fruit and blessing comes from being in obedience to them. The sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, the ninth commandment. They exact things of me. But what fruitfulness and blessing comes into my life when I am obedient to God's requirements and not those of my sinful nature. Well then, in summary, obedience is woven in to this part of John's counsel as the very proof of our love for God. What shall we say in conclusion? Well, here are the three tests combined. Belief of the truth, love of the brethren, obedience to God's commands. What an encouragement is here, that we overcome the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Three times over in this passage, victory, overcoming, conquest is mentioned. And there is a sense in which, as we leave these three tests for the last time, the Christian, clothed with this armor, 
is invincible. The plain audacity of this statement should make us stand up in amazement that nothing can destroy the person who bears these characteristics in his own life. And isn't it confirmed again and again in the Scriptures? Hebrews 11, the galaxy of the heroes of faith. By faith, Abraham left his own country. By faith, Noah did thus and thus. By faith, the prophets did their exploits. Faith was their victory. And the present application is so clear, isn't it? In this day when so many Christian churches are saying you need this gimmick and you need this new teaching and you need this experience to be a strong Christian, what does Scripture say? Belief of the truth, love of the brethren, obedience to God's commandments. Give me this clothing. Put me in this armor, Lord. And faith shall have the victory. And all who persecute and oppose the church of God as it wears these biblical garments, all will be cast down and destroyed. What a great encouragement this is to us. And here, it's not in some esoteric region to which we cannot aspire, but in the very word of God that is close to us even before us this evening. May God grant that this message of the three tests combined will take deep root in our lives and hearts for his glory's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this evening for these great words of John and see in them fresh life and light and power. And may they indeed be the subject of our meditation and of our thankfulness as we live our Christian lives by God's grace throughout this week to come for his name's sake. Amen.